Well, good morning. I bring you greetings from our brothers and sisters in uh, Mali, West Africa. Had the great privilege of being part of a, a chapel team that, uh, that visited Mali last week, and just so much to share. But uh, for now, let me, let me just say this. Even though uh, followers of Jesus only make up about 1% to 3% of the population uh, of the country, and even though they are really surrounded by Islam and kind of traditional African idol worship, um, the church in Mali is alive and is fired up. And so just to spend time with them was so inspiring. Um, the, the Kuchala Women and Children's Hospital is making a, a real noticeable difference in the community. It's an unashamedly Christian hospital. Um, they are saving the lives of children. They're performing really difficult surgeries. They're delivering, ba the hospital delivered 2,500 babies last year. So this is a, some really significant work in this community. So I think just seeing it firsthand um, has given me more confidence that investing in it is really a good investment. Um, whether that means you know, people resources, financial resources, sending teams, um, there's really something good going on there. So um, I'll share much more about it at the Thanksgiving Eve service. Uh, this Wednesday, we're gonna just share some gratitude things from what's going on in Mali, but um, we're just really thankful for, for the chapel's partnership there. So I know this is Thanksgiving week, but uh, Christmas is also coming. And so today, we start our Advent series called Let There Be Light. Last Friday, I guess it was a week ago, Friday, I was lying in bed in Mali in the room that I was sharing with two other members of the team, and I just drifted off to sleep, and I was awoken by people talking about something that had happened in Paris. And details were sketchy, but uh, early reports said there were about 150 dead and many more people injured. And in my kind of waking up out of sleep, my heart sank because I was reminded that even five time zones away, I couldn't get away from the reality that there's just a lot of darkness in the world. And just this last Friday, when the kidnapping happened right in Bamako, Mali, was just another reminder of that same thing. I'm not saying that there aren't any good things in the world, because there are. But it's hard to deny the reality of ISIS and school shootings and refugees searching for a home and racial tension. Um, it's hard to feel good about the fact that our own state, New Jersey, has a rate of heroin deaths three times the national average. Um, so as we enter into the darker days of winter, um, it's hard to deny that our world is dark in a lot of ways. So here we are kind of coming into the Advent season, the Christmas season. What we don't want to do is block all that out and put our heads in the sand and just sing jingle bells really loud, right? Um, we don't want to be, you know, deniers of reality. Um, we need to acknowledge the darkness, but at the same time, we have an opportunity to look, for, look to God for hope. And the place that we're going to look for that this year, the place we're going to focus is the book of Isaiah. Um, Isaiah was a Hebrew prophet. He lived around 700 BC, and the world that he was living in had all kinds of darkness. But he gives us a vision of hope that is still incredibly relevant today. So today our scripture is in Isaiah chapter 1, the first 20 verses, and it's kind of a long passage, so, so hang with me, it's worth, it's worth focusing in on this. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah son of Amos saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear me, you heavens, listen earth. 
for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there's no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. Your country is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fatted animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. And when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle this matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And this is the word of God. So three things that I see in this passage. Um, darkness is growing. Religion isn't helping. And God is inviting. Darkness is growing. Religion is not helping. And God is inviting. So let's start with darkness is growing. Um, when you open up the book of Isaiah, and maybe you've read it before, from the very start, it's just bad news. Did you notice that? I mean, this, this is depressing. It's addressed to the nation of Judah. And just to remind you of your, your um, Old Testament history, the nation of Israel used to be unified when David was king, when Solomon was king. But around the year 900 BC, the nation of Israel actually divided into two nations. So one kept the name Israel, one took the name Judah. And so this is addressed to Judah, whose capital was in Jerusalem. And we don't know exactly what was going on when Isaiah wrote it but obviously it was bad. Verse 5 says, why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head's injured, your whole heart's afflicted from your feet to your head. There's wounds and welts and open sores. Anybody see pictures of Ronda Rousey when she got defeated last week? The UFC fighter, supposedly unbeatable. She got beat, kicked to the side of the head, and the pictures that you saw in the news the next day open sores, everything swollen up, beaten, bloody, just defeated. That's pretty much how God describes the nation of Judah. 
They were in bad shape. They had apparently been invaded and attacked by a foreign nation, and they were just reeling from it. Verse 7 says, your country is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. So just like we look around today, right, you kind of cringe when you turn on the news in the morning to see if there's been another terrorist attack, to see this great horde of refugees that are looking for a home, to see if there's been another shooting in a school or a public place in, in our country. The people of Judah looked around and they saw just chaos and brokenness all around them. And the obvious question is, why is this happening to us? Right? What, what's causing this? And people still ask those questions all the time, right? Why is the world becoming like this? Why are these dark things happening? Can't we all just get along? And Isaiah has a very blunt explanation for that question. Look at the second part of verse 4. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. At the most basic level, the darkness in the world is a spiritual issue. It says they turned their backs on him. So when we see darkness in the world, the most foundational cause is that people have turned their backs on God. He talks about the same thing up in, in verse 3. He says, listen, the ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel doesn't know. My people don't understand. In other words, even dumb animals know who their master is. They instinctively have this sense of dependence and loyalty to their master. Every time I walk in the door, my dog knows it's me. And she runs up to me and she's all happy to see me. She knows that, that I'm her master and she looks to me for her feeding, for providing, for, for her protection. God says, my people don't even have that down. They don't even have that basic sense of trust and dependence on me. They've drifted apart from me. When a person or a family or a society drifts away from God, the distance that's created will be filled by darkness. It'll be filled with darkness. That's what Judah was experiencing in very painful ways, um, and I don't think we're much different. So you would think that the solution is you got to get more religion. The problem is Isaiah was writing to some of the most religious people who've ever lived. Um, so look at the second point. Religion isn't helping. The people of Judah couldn't figure out why their lives were such a mess, and they couldn't understand. How could this prophet, Isaiah, say that we've turned our backs on God? Because they felt like they were doing everything that God had asked them to do. So when you read verses 10 through 17, you find out they were bringing sacrifices to the temple, just like they were supposed to. They were burning incense to God just like they were supposed to. They were praying like they were supposed to. They were observing the Sabbath day by not doing any work on it, just like they were supposed to. They were observing the religious holidays. All the ritual requirements of the law, check, 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 check. And yet God was obviously unhappy. Verse 13 is a good summary of it. He says, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. And so Isaiah's message to these staggering, struggling people was, despite all your religion, God is just weary of you. Why? I mean, isn't that what God wants, for us to be devout religious people? Apparently not. And you start to get the answer to that question at the end of verse 15. Listen to verse 15. When you spread out your hands in prayer, God says, 
I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. And here's, here's why. Your hands are full of blood. In other words, what they were saying in their worship in the temple did not match up with how they were living outside the temple. Does that make sense? That lack of, of, of matching up. They thought God would be satisfied as long as they did the religious rituals. And how often do people think that? God's happy. I went to church today. But God was just as interested. In fact, I would say God was more interested in the way they lived their everyday lives. Jesus talked about this quite a bit. Uh, Matthew chapter 15, Jesus was talking to a group of very religious, devout people called Pharisees. And here's what Jesus told them. Matthew 15, 8. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So I think this is what this means for, for us. It is possible to attend church like we're all doing right now. It is possible to pray prayers and, and listen to Christian radio and read the Bible and give generous offerings and put a silver fish on our bumper and post pictures on Facebook of sunsets with Bible verses to do all of that stuff and for God to still say, you've turned your back on me. And we go, well, what do you want from me, God? And God says, your heart is far from me. I don't want your religious activity. I want your heart. And God says, the condition of your heart is revealed, it's evidenced by something very specific that I'm telling you here. So look at verse 17. This is how God defines a heart that's aligned with his heart. Learn to do right, seek justice, listen to this, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. We do not have the first clue about God until we realize that he is passionate about the oppressed and the fatherless, and the widow. God loves all people, but he's got a special thing for people who are culturally and socially weak. So God hates it when, when wealthier towns get more attention and more investment from the government than poor towns. He hates that. God hates it when fatherless kids in Newark and Patterson and Jersey City go through their childhood without the affirmation and the discipline of a dad, and he hates it when suburban churches around those fatherless kids don't do anything about it. God hates it when we see refugee children, even though, of course, we have to be wise and careful about, about the security and the safety of our country, of course, but he hates it when we don't even shed a tear or deeply care about what happens to them or if they have a place to put their head at night. Can we just let this speak to us without becoming defensive? Notice the verbs. He says, defend them, take up their cause, plead their case. Those are all active things, right? Actions. So God was saying to the people of Judah, yes, you guys come to the temple, you do all the religious things, but you've got blood on your hands, meaning you are guilty of neglecting the very people that I'm most concerned about. How can you worship me and say how much you love me and how much you want to follow me when you're ignoring the things that I'm most interested in? Something's not matching up. A few years ago, um, Christopher Hitchens, a renowned atheist, wrote a book that was very offensive to a lot of people. The name of the book is God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. And in the book, he speaks for really a growing number of people, especially in America and Western Europe, who really believe that the reason for the darkness in the world is religion. And so in the book, he gives example after example of how 
throughout history, religion has been causing oppression and violence and racism and wars. Religion is a problem. And more and more people believe that. And you know what? They're right. They're right. When you define religion the way the people of Judah were practicing it, ceremonies, rituals, conforming to the external laws of the religion, if that's how you define it, then religion really does poison everything. It really does make the world darker. And, and here's why I say that. This is what happens. As a religious person, I will naturally start to feel superior to people who aren't like me, right? And in extreme cases, that becomes jihad, kill the infidels. But we have our own ways of playing this out. We can easily start to look down on others who aren't from our religious tribe and start to exclude them. So instead of serving people and caring for people, especially the weak and the marginalized people that God is so concerned about, religion does the opposite. It makes me self-sufficient, makes me self-righteous and self-absorbed. And the more self-absorbed and more self-righteous people there are in the world, the darker the world is going to get. Religion does poison everything. Thankfully, in this opening chapter of Isaiah, God is not just confronting the people for their empty religion, though. Um, he's inviting them to something very different. Verse 18, God says, come now, let us settle the matter, or in some translations, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Those are words of hope, right? I mean, even though there's terrible darkness surrounding them that was caused by them turning their backs on God, despite that, God says, I want to forgive you. I want things to be good between us. Those are words of, of hope. So here's the invitation. Here's the kind of heart that can, can open itself up to the forgiveness of God. This is what the prophet was calling the people to, verses 19 and 20. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and you, and you rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. If you are willing and obedient, and you go, well, willing, obedient to do what? To come to, come to church? To pray prayers? No, they're already doing that. Willing and obedient to care for the oppressed and the orphan and the widow the way that God cares for them, right? I mean, that's what he's calling them to. He's not calling them to stop coming to the temple, but he's calling them to bring alignment to the things that they say about God in church and the way they imitate God outside of church. He wants those things to align. You know what the problem is? We just have a really hard time doing this. Even if we're very faithful attendees at church and doing religious things comes easily, there's something in us that, that doesn't want to get too involved with the weak and the poor and the powerless of our society. And, and it was true of them, and it's true of us. And so this next, this last thing is so important. This is the key to everything. When you read Isaiah, God is not just calling us to something. He is preparing us or pointing us to someone. And we're going to see this over the next few weeks. He's not just calling. He's, a prophet is not just saying, stop doing something, start doing something else. He's preparing us for someone, a Savior, a Messiah, who was coming. So over the next few weeks, you're going to hear Isaiah begin to drop these little hints about the coming Messiah. Because knowing the Messiah is the key, the only way we're going to live out what Isaiah is calling us to do. So you're going to hear about this much more over the next few weeks, but let's just take our last couple of minutes to think about how knowing Jesus actually enables us to bring light into this dark world as Isaiah is calling us to do. 
What kind of family was Jesus born into? It was a poor, uneducated, insignificant family in a stable. Do you remember that when Jesus was a young boy, he and his family had to flee for their safety, and they became refugees? Isn't that interesting? In so many ways, Jesus himself was the kind of person that Isaiah calls us to care for. Weak, marginalized, socially poor. And then all through his life, Jesus did exactly what Isaiah is calling us to do. He gave himself to the people that nobody wanted to be with. He hung out with people that were pushed aside by society. He touched lepers. He healed cripples. He showed dignity to prostitutes and tax collectors. Think back for a minute just over this past week. Were you able to show dignity to people who are socially undesirable people? Did you, did you do that? How about us as a church? How are we doing with what Isaiah is calling the people to? Could Isaiah walk into this church and level the same charges against us? But most of all, Jesus, at the end of his life, went to the cross, and he willingly received what we deserve on himself. Right? What Jesus was receiving on the cross was judgment that we actually earn, the judgment But Jesus says, I'll step in and take it on your behalf. And all we have to do is humble ourselves and receive that as a gift by faith. The forgiveness of God comes to us. I'm telling you, that's just a humbling thing. When we realize that God is not impressed with our church attendance, he's not impressed with our sacrifices and our offerings and all the things that people of, of Judah were doing, he's not impressed. The only thing that makes us right with God is humbling ourselves and receiving Christ by faith. And the more we get that, the more we are reminded of how weak and powerless we are, the more we will truly care for the weak and the needy around us because we're them. There's no difference between us and them. See, religion was poisoning everything for the people of Judah. It can poison everything for us. It makes the world darker. It separates people from one another. It creates um, different levels of people. It makes us feel superior to others. The gospel is so different because the gospel makes us more humble and more compassionate and more sacrificial. It moves us to treat people the way that God has already treated us. And so during this this Advent season, we got about a month here, let's dream together about how we can so align our hearts with the heart of God for the things that we do in church services like this to actually resonate because in our regular lives, we're thinking about life and people the way that God thinks about life and people and how by doing that we can bring light into this dark world. Would you rise and let's pray together. And before we pray, let me just remind you of uh, something that Brady mentioned a moment ago. Um, This is a a new project out in the lobby, this wall of thankfulness. And I want to especially encourage uh, the artists among us so you don't have to write words. Um, if there's something that you're grateful for and you can, you can, you can kind of uh, represent that with a picture, um, get creative or write words, whatever you want. We'd love to see that wall full for Thanksgiving Eve. So with the, the challenge of the prophet ringing in our ears, let's just ask God for his grace. Oh, Father, we know <laughs> that in so many ways we stand exposed and guilty like the people of Judah before the challenge of your prophet, that we so often do look to our religious activity and think that's what you're into. Oh God, that's not what you're into. Thank you for reminding us today, Lord, that you are passionate 
about the fatherless and the orphan, the widow, and the poor. Father, would you help us this Advent season as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the coming of a Savior? I pray, Lord, that the way we think about life, the way that we invest ourselves, our resources, our money, our attention, will be aligned with your heart. Lord, help us to make a massive difference in the darkness of this world because we are walking in step with Jesus Christ. Thank you for the celebration of baptism today, Lord. Would you fill the hearts of everyone who was baptized today with joy and with the knowledge that they are inseparable from you, that you'll never leave them for the rest of their lives. Lord, we love you. Help us to be thankful this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If we can pray for you today, we're going to have prayer counselors up front. Anything you need prayer for, please come up. God bless you.